Hello and welcome to the Haiku P podcast. I'm Patricia, and this week I'm joined at P Towers by Keith Evans, who will be talking about Taria Vaza and setting you some goals for our topic in July. I hope you enjoy it. Before we get going, a quick reminder of the submission call we have open at the moment. Until the 15th of May 2023, we have a call for submissions of Haiku and Senryu expressing inner and outer weather. Eve Castle gave you some inspirational examples in podcast S6E6. It's in audio and on YouTube, and of course, you can go to our website and follow the link to our notes. As usual, we have a video prompt on the Poetry P YouTube channel. All you have to do is leave your haiku or senryu in the comments for our lovely editor, Linda Ludwig, to read. She'll make a selection, and her selection will be read on the podcast and published in the Poetry P journal. Please only put work that has not been published elsewhere in the comments. Might get awkward otherwise. So now I need a little bit of your help, please. We had our first ever live event recently. You heard the recording on episode 11 of the sixth series. It was Sean O'Connor. Now, what I'd like to know is who else would you like to have an audience with? Or what else would you like to hear about and have an audience about? I know you want some tanker. And in 2024, I know it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? We'll do that. But what else can I bring you? Well, it's been a few weeks since Keith came along to Pete Towers to record this presentation for you. I really hope you enjoy it. Let's go. Our guest today is Keith Evans. He probably needs no introduction. Regular listeners will know his work and will have heard the workshop he did for us last year on vulgar haiku. If you haven't, please go and have a listen. It's episode 11 of series five. And of course, there'll be a link in the show notes. I should also mention that he runs Revirals on the Haiku Foundation. You can check that out and make some comments on the chosen haiku, because I know you're a knowledgeable bunch and I'd really like to read your thoughts. And I'm sure Keith would too. He's also a moderator for one of the largest haiku groups on Facebook, The Daily Haiku which I think at the moment has 13,500 members. Amazing. Today he's back to talk to us about Toriyawaza, which he'll probably tell me I'm pronouncing wrong, a Japanese aesthetic that we're going to employ in our next submission period. Keith is obviously here to help us. Keith, welcome back. Patricia, thank you. <laughs> I think he's, okay. he's had a print, but, but I'm just from Birmingham, so what do I know? <laughs> Keith, I know that one of the haiku groups I go to have spoken about this topic on many occasions. It always gets discussions going, and I know this particular group are looking forward to what you have to say. So shall we find out what that is? Toriyawase. Um, and now you've terrified me, of course, by telling me there's a whole load of eager beavers waiting to pick this to pieces. Right. So it's more than just uh, juxtaposition. I'm going to look at this uh, aesthetic, which has generally been translated simply as juxtaposition, a well-used technique in haiku. But it is more than that. 
a fuller understanding of Toriwase has helped me to value many haiku I didn't appreciate so much at first. I'll be touching briefly on other forms of Japanese art to illustrate the principle. The video version of this presentation is strongly recommended because there are a number of slides. Firstly, two haiku I used to find a little difficult. Under young green leaves, white water, yellow barley. Under young green leaves, white water, yellow barley. What do you notice? In this first one, we have three elements, tree leaves, water, and barley. We also seem to have mixed seasons, or possibly a seasonal progression, in that young green leaves are clearly spring, white water is likely to be spring, and barley doesn't change from green to yellow until after midsummer. If there is a moment in the present, it is the yellow barley that the seasons have led us to. It looks as though the lines have been composed away from the field, and they're bound together by colours and by the little story they tell of ripening grain. Or possibly, if the yellow barley is in fact barley corn, then it's all spring and the story is of the sowing. The second one, willow leaves have fallen, the clear stream has dried, and stones are scattered here and there. Willow leaves have fallen, the clear stream has dried, and stones are scattered here and there. Rather downbeat. But we have three elements again, willow leaves, the stream, and stones. Here too, there's progression in time made clearer by hints of the past in the first two lines. It is a little story, and the unwritten element that binds the elements together is drought. Now, these two haiku are by Yosobusan in the 1700s, one of the three greatest masters, the first translated by Persinger, the second by Makoto Ueda. Notice it's quite long. It's much longer than 17 syllables, by the way, but that's just by the way. I wonder whether an editor today would accept these for publication. I can imagine a reply, Dear Yossa, thank you for your submission. I regret to say we're not able to accept these offerings, but we look forward to seeing more of your poetry. Fortunately, he wouldn't have been discouraged. Moving on, here is another, a famous haiku by Oshima Ryota, also in the 1700s. They spoke no words, the visitor, the host, and the white chrysanthemum. They spoke no words, the visitor, the host, and the white chrysanthemum. Now, from the white chrysanthemum, we infer that this is a death and the visitor is paying respects. The silent host is in the coffin, or is possibly the living next of kin watching over it as visitors are received. This is a solemn moment. No words need be said, nor would they suffice. Only the pure white chrysanthemum is equal to the occasion. Silence and solemnity bind the three elements in this arrangement. 
and the verse covers the period of the visit rather than a single moment of it. And again, the poem tells a fragment of a story. Note that exceptionally, it's set in a past tense or rendered in the past tense by Blythe, a highly skilled Japanese linguist whose contribution to knowledge of haiku in the West is immense. He didn't render it as they speak no words, but the matter of tense is a subject for another occasion, perhaps. Lastly, those who like to make a distinction between haiku and senryu along the lines of nature versus the human condition might want to think uh, carefully about this one. So what's going on in these three masterly haiku? Toriwase no bigaku, the aesthetics of association, juxtaposing different things and arranging them in a harmonious combination enhances the beauty of the whole by relating each to the other. And this aesthetic permeates many areas of Japanese art, design, gardening, even the kitchen, and also haiku. For context, I'm going to move swiftly through a number of Japanese arts that illustrate Toriwase, among other principles. Basho observed that some poets who had been writing haiku for many years were slower in understanding the spirit of haiku than newcomers familiar with other arts. As we go through the slides that follow, keep in mind the principles and aesthetics that you already know from the practice of haiku. First, the tea ceremony. And this picture shows the preparations for sharing tea using an array of different utensils and dishes carefully arranged in a natural setting to increase the focus, the intensity and pleasure of sharing, tasting and consuming tea. Sen no Rikyu, at 1500s, known simply as Rikyu, had the greatest influence on the Japanese way of tea. He emphasized wabisha, a taste for the simple and quiet rustic simplicity, austere refinement rather than extravagance, and favored directness of approach and honesty of self. The principle of Toriwase is often associated with the tea ceremony. Next, Ikebana, and this beautiful arrangement here uses shape, form, colors, minimalism, the juxtaposition of flowers, foliage, fruit, and branches. Ikebana combine and relate elements, each different, in a harmonious whole. There are asymmetries, there is dynamism, twisted and dark things become part of the beauty. Although it looks natural, it isn't random. It has clearly been given some order by human hand. The container and display complement each other. Again, the purpose is to pause, focus, contemplate and meditate to intensify the experience like haiku. Next. The art of presenting food, moritsuke. And here we have a picture of a little boat 
with various tasty morsels in it. And we find in this particular art, the notion of layers in, is frequently present, um, especially layers of color in presenting food, as in many other Japanese artistic disciplines, including haiku, where layers is a frequently used term. Complementary colors and shapes too. Again, different but related things are juxtaposed and arranged, often asymmetrically, served in a vessel that complements the dishes. Here, a little boat for seafood and rice. The whole contributes to and intensifies a focus upon the food, a joy in morsels that transcends the ingredients. And I'm hoping I don't need to point out the similarities in haiku. Next, and perhaps least like haiku, is gardening. Uh, this is one of the gardens in the picture here of uh, Kazuyuki Ishihara, the amazing flamboyant garden designer from Nagasaki, who's won at least 14 gold medals at the Chelsea Flower Show. And layers of different plants, shapes and colours, water, rocks and symbols of humanity and nature combine for contemplation and tranquility. This is not the spare beauty of Ikebana or Zen gardens, but still respects the principle of Toriwase. Not random, but a careful arrangement of many elements, different but related by the designer, each enhancing the beauty of the others and of the whole. And finally, Niwaki, which is cloud pruning, and bonsai. Again, the harmonious arrangement of different shapes, often asymmetrical and slightly distressed, but balanced in harmony, part of the same wholeness. We are brought to focus upon the tree, large or small, as the essence of treeness. Incidentally, PowerPoint's artificial intelligence describes the bonsai as, quote, a small tree in a pot. I think you'll agree it is so much more than that. In all these Japanese practices, there are common features to intensify an experience by focus, contemplation and introspection. Among them, the selection of differing elements and their arrangement to form an harmonious whole. This is Toriwase, juxtaposing and relating contrasting things. But Toriwase has usually been translated into English as juxtaposition only. In the other arts, there's a strong visual element, although other senses may also be involved. And so too in haiku, where words work primarily with images of things though other senses may be involved as synesthesia. It's not simply a question of sticking any two or more contrasting things side by side. In English language haiku, the focus has been to put imagistic elements next to each other with a separation or cut to contrast them. In trying to resolve this contrast, it's hoped that the reader will find a flash of insight, an aha moment. 
the emphasis on contrast at the expense of a relationship between them has increasingly tended to dominate. And the gap between the elements, the shift, sometimes becomes very great. This is a disruptive approach where, as in surrealist art, elements that have no natural relationship with one another are juxtaposed with the aim of shaking up the reader's brain to see what falls out. An example, um, the length of an ironing board, plastic gnome. Uh, it's up to you whether you think that's poetry um, or not. But it seems to me that there have been uh, several verses appearing in certain journals which are of this kind. And that the ever greater striving for an aha moment or straining, perhaps in this case, or in the case of Senryu, perhaps an oh-ho moment, has masked another essential of Toriwase. The link is as important as the shift. The relationship between the parts of a haiku is more nuanced than simply juxtaposition or contrast. The result of combining different elements should offer harmony rather than disharmony. An ah moment is as valid as an aha moment. Basha said, oh, I like Basha, good chap. Know that hoku is a putting together of things, a toria wasimono. And from the dictionary, the taking and combining of things. In putting them together, the different elements of a verse should, in Basho's view, add to but complement each other, so that each part is enhanced by the other and the whole is greater than the parts. A reader reaching the end of a verse should go back to reevaluate the earlier part in its light. This is often rendered in English as reverberation or resonance. But the old masters sought a harmonious reverberation rather than a dissonant clang. Let's look at one by Basher himself. By binding things together, this one. Beneath a tree, clear soup, pickled fish, and cherry blossoms too. Beneath a tree, clear soup, pickled fish, and cherry blossoms too. Now, this is a hoku by Basho, setting the season and an upbeat tone for a renga, and like as not paying a compliment to the host. This is not just the description of a picnic. This is Basho celebrating the little satisfactions of life, a place to be beneath a tree, with all the symbolism that carries, a simple soup and pickles for a meal. What more could we want for sustenance? Ah, yes, beauty. The elements are framed by the tree and its blossoms and bound by the feeling of pure, simple joy. An ah moment. Incidentally, um, I digress a little bit here. The next poet in the Renga, Fubaku, followed this verse um, with a narrative or content link with a verse that read, a spring that brings regret to tomorrow's visitor. Um, what he was trying to do here was to move on from the scene Basho painted and say that, well, somebody arriving a bit late would have missed it all. Uh, Basho didn't really like this, uh, and he asked a different poet 
um, who subsequently offered a sun setting gently in the west. Great weather. And Basha was very pleased with this because it picks up the mood of the verse he wrote and carries it on rather than um, carrying it on with a verse that really changes the tone to a negative one. And these are known as scent links, niorizuke, and the idea of fragrance as a subtle element relating things is an old Japanese aesthetic, and we'll meet that in some of the verses to come. But meanwhile, let's have a closer look at this one of Basho's, a technique I often use in analysing haiku uh, of others as well as mine, is to see what effect substituting words has. Let's play with Basho's verse. Beneath a tree, clear soup, pickled fish, and a bomb surprise. Well, now this is another item of food, and it doesn't really fit, does it? Because it's a sophisticated dessert um, and not uh, the clear, simple things that we've been dealing with. So let's try something else. Beneath a tree, clear soup, pickled fish, and a gashed beer can. Now, this might appeal, actually appeals to me a bit um, because it's reality intruding on a uh, an idyllic scene. Um, but it's you can see that the, the harmony in the verse is lost by this um, disharmonious element that is introduced. Now, what about introducing something else which, um, again, people might think was absolutely wonderful and joyful? Beneath a tree, clear soup, pickled fish and a new Maserati. Well, again, <laughs> I think you can see the harmony is being progressively lost as we go on here. And, uh, and this expensive luxury item, much as you might covet it, it isn't the same thing that Basho was on about at all. Uh, lastly, beneath a tree, clear soup, pickled fish and a howitzer. Ah, well, this would do for the group that uh, it is uh, soliciting Senryu on the Ukraine war, perhaps. But again, you can see that the effect is, is disharmonious. It's not the kind of arrangement that produces joy uh, and beauty. Nevertheless, some of these things you know, could, be, could be interesting. Uh, what if we, uh, instead of having cherry blossoms, we have another botanical season word beneath a tree clear soup pickled fish and withered grasses and again i think you can see with these illustrations that that the substitutions are detracting from the mood of, of joy and sufficiency that basha has set and not adding to them oh what if we try and write um, a verse along these lines where all the elements do uh, agree with each other in, in tone. Beneath an umbrella, cold fish and chips, flat beer and muddy puddles. But when we experiment by reworking the verse in this way, they, the elements are related, but by a cold, wet day, and we may not get harmony either. It lacks joy or beauty unless we revel in gloom. But as you know, Basher too didn't always conform 
to the ideals he propounded. He wrote, for example, fleas and lice, now a horse pisses by my pillow. I leave it to you to decide whether that uh, is an example of Toriwase or not. Now let's move on to some other classic illustrations of Toriwase. Here's some more Busson. Pear blossoms, reading a letter by moonlight, a woman. Now, first, a translation note here. The last line, according to the dictionary, is an ordinary woman. I think something has been lost by Persinger in this translation, because if it's an ordinary woman or a common woman, it actually changes the meaningfulness of the verse quite a lot. So this is a woman of the village, a common woman. And we have four elements in this verse, the blossom, the moon, the letter, and the woman. And we have two implied breaks or cuts. Now here, there's not only harmony between the blossom, the illumination of moonlight, and a woman. There's also a story suggested, a love story. And the ordinary woman, let's call her every woman, becomes transcendent, is made beautiful, as beautiful as the moon and the blossom through love. A marvelous verse. Another, even more gorgeous, mist among grasses, silent rain, evening calm. Mist among grasses, silent rain, evening calm. A measure of the success of Busson's gorgeous verse here is that it is very hard to put into words the subtle feeling of harmony it produces. The transient veil of mist, the short-lived grasses, the silently persistent rain, the coming of evening, and the calmness of acceptance. Poignant and very, very beautiful. A very high order of Toriwasa and of scent-linking, Nyorizuke. And Issa, everybody loves Issa. <laughs> I certainly love Issa. Drinking cheap sake, this cuckoo, this grove, or simply rough sake, this cuckoo, this grove. Three simple image elements are arranged here. The rough man-made sake, juxtaposed with the little cuckoo's song, set among the trees. And what relates them is intoxication, intoxication with the beauty of his natural surroundings in the here and now, heightened by the rough sake with which they are contrasted, but which intensifies the experience. Now, Issa has twice stressed the word this, using kono in Japanese. This cuckoo, this grove, the present instance of all the class of cuckoos, the present instance of all the class of groves. I think this is an exemplary haiku in many ways. Moving on to some contemporary examples, which have managed to preserve the same approach. Mountain Cafe, Miso Clouds the Broth. This is by Al Pete in Hedgerow. Mountain cafe, miso clouds the broth. 
So clouds in the mountains become the little clouds when miso paste is stirred into a clear broth to make miso soup. The five elements, five note, mountain, cafe, miso, clouds, and broth combine in a six-word verse that might give some readers problems in calling it a haiku as there's no clear or commonly understood season word. Miso soup is hot, but we're in the mountains that are chilly all year. I would say that by inference, we're in summer tourism. Patricia, I think, would say that we might be in winter because she lives in Switzerland. Does it matter? At any rate, it's a sweet haiku and demonstrates Toriwasa, the harmonious juxtaposition of different things. We hear secret harmonies in this next haiku by Tim Kremin. A shaft of sunlight on the vase of roses, music room. A shaft of sunlight on the vase of roses, music room. So this is a well-composed arrangement of four elements, sunlight, vase, or vase if you're American, roses, music room, as the sunbeam plays on the roses in their twinkling vase. A delightful word painting of which Busson might have approved, again band together by a subtle feeling of transcendent joy that is hard to put into concrete words. Now, one of mine even, full moon, the owlet's eyes in the nest box hole. Full moon, the owlet's eyes in the nest box hole. The elements of the full moon, the owlet's eyes and the nest box hole are related by roundness in this portrayal of a young owl in early autumn, eager for its first flight to adventure, the start of a story. And finally, we have a delightful verse from a poet who has often stretched our minds in, in the surreal sense. I like this one very much. In the elevator, a boy, an old man, a goldfish in a bag by Peter Yovu. In the elevator, a boy, an old man, a goldfish in a bag. I used to tell my young children stories when I came home from work in time and ask them each to provide um, something they'd like to be in the story, and then I'd make one up. And it, this one reminded me of that. So I like this one a lot. It's original, which always attracts me, and it's one for our times. It's in an elevator. Um, but nevertheless, it's rooted in the aesthetic that we've been considering, time and age are harmoniously related in the five elements, the old man and the boy aging in the same elevator at their different stages, and the goldfish in its bag likewise. We may imagine that the man and boy are relations, and the man has taken his grandson to the fair, just as he used to go there as a boy. The elevator and the bag are both confined spaces on the way to the apartment. A fine example of a modern scenario that shares a fragment of a much larger story in terse plain words with several layers of richness. Toriawase. So what can we draw from all this? 
Well, we have separate elements distinct from one another, but related in some way, preferably not explicit, but subtly to be inferred. Uh, they are harmonious unless a discordant effect is intended as the whole point of the verse. And they are possibly a small fragment of a larger story. Now, how can we approach this in practice? Well, we can think about separate elements of one scene, especially a natural scene, and note them down. We can combine them or some of them in a harmonious arrangement where they work together. Sometimes this may be more natural if there are three or even four elements that could almost demand that they be arranged. The elements should be different, but not so different that there is no relation between them. There should be something which links or relates the elements that does not have to be stated explicitly, but can and perhaps should be inferred by the reader. This can be what leads to the aha or the ah moment. Not mandatory, but frequently, it will be possible for the reader to reconstruct the fragment of a story from the verse. For in haiku, we are often sharing a fragment of life's larger story. An example, one still autumn morning, there was mist on the Thames, and as I cycled along the towpath, a pine cone fell into the water with a plop. Aha! The elements went into the notebook I carry, the mist, the river, the pine cone, the towpath, the bicycle, and me. I took what I thought were the three elements of importance and arranged them with a little composing. Mist without a seasonal modifier defaults to autumn, which is when pine cones usually fall, so the season is consistent, as one would expect from a real natural observation. I thought the relationship between vapour and the river into which a pine cone falls, carrying seeds to be born who knows where, requiring water for germination and growth, made a little potential story with no ego in it. Rising mist, a pine cone falls into the river. Published in the Haiku Foundation Haiku Dialogue in July, a subsequent commenter wrote, love this gentle picture so evocative. Another editor included it among his favorites of the week. And the guest editor agreed with, quote, the importance of subtlety and the power of an image to evoke as in the pine cone falling into the river. So that was one of the good days. Now, following this workshop, um, we're going to call for a haiku or senryu um, that try to embody the principle of toriwase, the harmonious juxtaposition and relation of different things verses with two or more real and different images juxtaposed so that in their relationship each enhances the others with one or more cuts clear or implied and if a haiku an indication of season they may 
but need not suggest a fragment of a greater story. And if a thought is used in place of a real image, then if possible, make it impersonal, detached from the poet's ego. And finally, another verse, a photographer and a woodpecker circling a tree by Sean Blair in Failed Haiku. A photographer and a woodpecker circling a tree. I think this is an excellent verse. We have three images joined by a circle, a highly dynamic arrangement. On the face of it, a humorous senryu about a laughably typical human scenario. On another layer, a haiku for haikuists about how we try to capture nature in a moment, but it continually eludes us. Woodpecker is an accepted seasonal reference, so it's a haiku. Or on a third abstracted layer, the enso, humankind and nature in a never-ending circle, the circle of life, enlightenment and the void, perpetual motion around the tree, the bounteous tree, the tree of knowledge. There is a story in this haiku, it is the never-ending story, much as I go around in circles trying to capture Toriawase. Thank you. And back to you, Patricia. Thank you, Keith. Uh, I have to say a big thank you because I, I know there's not much in the way of information out there about Toriawase. So I know you had to look far and wide, and I know when I did my research, I had to look far and wide, but there really isn't much out there. And I think it will be useful. And I think you're going to give me some links to put on the show notes so people can do a little bit of research themselves. I will. But I actually learned more about this and thought more about this by going to the other arts. Uh, you will find mention of Toriwase in um, works on tea ceremonies and food presentation and uh, clothing and so forth. Um, so that helped to open my eyes. The fact is that the element of juxtaposition has what is what's been seized upon and um, developed in haiku, and less attention has been paid to the link than to the shift. When we started out doing this, Keith, I did wonder, and particularly after I did my research and found very little out there, I wondered what brought you to this topic. What what intrigued you? I started from. Two ends, really, uh, when they came together in the middle on Tori Wesso. One was that, although they're, they're great fun, I, I was increasingly uncomfortable with some of these very, very obscure juxtapositions uh, where there really isn't much relationship between the things and you're expected to make sense of it. Um, and I, I don't think the aha that we're looking for is uh, like a crossword puzzle you know, where, where you puzzle for 10 minutes and then go, aha, you've worked it out. Um, I, I don't think that's that's what uh, Basher intended. I think it's a much subtler uh, relationship that, that we're looking for. So the um, unease about a disruptive approach was, was one of the things that got me looking at it. Uh, coming from the other end, 
it was the fact that you know I love Issa, and it's very easy to understand because he's so human. He's so flawed. He knows he knows about his flaws and his problems, and you know he prays to Buddha and kills mosquitoes and things like that, um, and drinks sake, which he's not supposed to do while listening to the cuckoo. So we all love Issa. It's very easy um, to open our hearts to him. And Basho also um, appeals to me very, very much as he works on the mind. But Busan was, I always was left rather cold by most of his poems um, until looking at Toiwasa, I, I realized what he was about. You know, he was a painter. Uh, he was interested in visual images and the way they work together. And he wanted to paint pictures. And of course, later that was taken up by by Shiki promoting chasse and pictures from life. I now understand Busan, I think, um, better than when I didn't really know what Toriwasa was. Anyway, that answers that question. One of the things that interests me about the the work or the work you've brought us today is that they are often little fragments of a story. And so often we're told that haiku shouldn't be stories, aren't we? That um, I'm really pleased that you brought this element of storytelling through. Yes, it, it, I've seen that too several times. And, and I think you know, people trying to define what haiku is and isn't frequently get into some difficulties uh, because you can always find Plenty of impeccable examples to show the opposite. It doesn't always have to tell a story. And, and indeed, um, you would think that some of Busan Shiki's um, in you know, painting a moment uh, don't tell stories. But they do, of course. They do tell stories. People have said that, um, I think actually this goes back to Busan, but um, David McMurray also says this that haiku is uh, about sharing something, sharing part of a story. There is a Japanese term for that, which escapes me at the moment. So uh, another thing is a greeting. It's been described as a greeting haiku, which is an interesting thing to play with. It doesn't take me very far. Um, Mm. But I think where that comes from is that uh, haiku come from the hoku of a renga. Yeah. And the hoku generally had two or more elements, as we see from Basha's example that I used. Um, And they frequently, you know, they set the scene. They often complimented the host. um, And they more or less welcomed the participants to the start of the renga as Basha's under the tree soup pickled fish and cherry blossoms too i mean that's it complements the host it basically says you know here we all are under the tree um and it's beautiful you know let let let's go from there and so in a way that's a greeting uh it's also a story yes it is and you you asked a question right at the beginning i think you said you wondered if uh, they would get accepted by editors these days. And I know you've, yes, played, I, you've played a trick on me once or twice, I think. I did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think it was Issa got a round rejection from me. Yeah, yeah, you rejected Issa. <laughs> yeah, dear Issa. 
I, I'm sorry. Thank you but... for your submission. <laughs> I spend a lot of time reading and rereading the, the ancients. And I see all sorts of things there that, that you know editors today would turn their noses up. I see metaphors. I see similes. I see Basho talking about, you know, fish weeping and mm -hmm. things like that. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, and, I know um, you're a linguist. You know, uh, maybe, not maybe really. Not, well, not a, not a fully employed linguist, but you you speak another language at least. Well, I, I'm a I'm a scientist. Um, True. But then I, I when I joined the Foreign Office, I was given a language aptitude test, mm -hmm. and um, unfortunately, I scored extremely highly <laughs> on that. <laughs> and so I I was sent off to learn Polish, which was fascinating. Anyway, mm -hmm. so I have. Or had Polish, Portuguese, and reasonable French, which is now all of these have now decayed. Mm. Um, but yes, I do like words, and I don't speak Japanese or, or read and write it. But um, it seems actually to be quite approachable. I get quite a lot out of taking the Japanese characters and running them one by one through the Jisho Dictionary, for instance. Uh -huh. um, and that helps me enormously to see the depth in the uh, in, in Japanese haiku uh, by, by the old masters, uh, which escapes translation. Um, I recommend that, but it's very toilsome to do. It's very toilsome. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my question. Did Have you tried doing that? Because sometimes yeah. I think when work is not translated, by someone who of a poetic bent, you lose something. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I'm I'm reading a book at the moment of of, of Busson. I'm not going to say who it is, because it is the most atrocious translation of his work. It's actually a mm. Japanese speaker who's Japanese English mm. speaker who is translating them into the English. But um, again, this is not a discussion for now. But it's something that maybe we can think about for another time yeah and i he... think a lot a, a lot is is lost in translation yeah. i mean it, somebody uh, another haiku said to me the other day um, pretty much the same you know i i think that um you know, we can't really understand the haiku that we see from you know basha and the likes in translation um because you know we, we do, we're not aware of all the reverberations and associations that there are and the double meanings there are mm. in in the japanese written in characters and i think you know we have to accept that but that we're not trying to write japanese haiku in japanese and we're trying to extract from them um some underlying principles which help us to write haiku that they would recognize as haiku uh, even though the times and the language is different. Now, one last thing before we, we head off our, our separate ways. You have, I think, another poem to share. If we you do. Would, if you would share that with us, because it's it's something from Poetry P. I shared it with your group on Revirals recently. And the majority of people agreed with me in what I said about it. And I would... I'd, say to people, go and have a look. I think it was the 17th of February, Revirals. And you had a very interesting comment to make, which is pertinent to today's discussions. Snow on reeds, the hush of a barn owl across the fen. Snow on reeds, the hush of a barn owl 
Across the Fen. That's Christopher Chupp, and that was in Poetry Peace Journal 322. And it was, in fact, a judge's choice, my choice. I think it, you did very well. And like and you. what you, I've actually noted down what you wrote or some of it. Um, <laughs> you said, this poem looks great on the page. It sounds wonderful in your head. But when you read it out loud, it really comes into its own. It has a key go and a cut. And Christopher's phrase element of this haiku is rhythmic and lyrical. Sometimes I think this has gone out of fashion in haiku. Uh, I'm going to interject there. I say sometimes I think lyricism has, is being overdone in haiku these days. But anyway, mm -hmm. I know what you mean. Yeah. As poets, we're often so careful not to write haiku in the Western poetic fashion that we lose rhythm. But Christopher hasn't. It adds to the melancholic beauty of the piece. The image of the fragment combined with the phrase gives me an empty feeling an overwhelming feeling of sadness and beauty. And that's what you said. Mm -hmm. And I say, Toriawase, four different elements, snow, reeds, the owl, and the fen, beautifully arranged in an harmonious whole. The silence of omen binds it together. And we took this in Revirals 386, and you're mm -hmm. right, it was the 17th of February. And a lot of interesting discussion afterwards about aha moments yes. <laughs> and yeah. things like that. And it could be, this poem, the first line of a story. And here's the story. We all feel sorry for the vole, don't we? I suppose for those of us who are listening rather than watching, it's a picture of a, of a beautiful picture of an owl who has a little vole in his claws. Go and have a look at your revirals or, and read maybe my... Uh, commentary in, in the journal too, to get a feel for that poem, but it's a beautiful piece of work. And when I read your comment in Revirals, it just increased my admiration for Christopher's piece of work. My view of, of, of haiku is that er every word in a haiku has to be there for a reason. And if it can be taken out, it, it should be taken out because we're we're aiming for um, brevity for the thing to be concisely expressed, but still to evoke uh, an emotional response of some sort or a response of insight or imagination. Should we, Keith, before we've absolutely finished, have a quick look at the slide and you can read it through to us, which suggests what people should be doing for this topic? We're not looking for the kind of verse which is disruptive for this exercise, let's see if we can uh, use the principle of the harmonious juxtaposition and relation of things in our verses. And we don't have to restrict ourselves to two images. You'll see very many of the examples I've quoted have, have got at least three things in there. And if you have three things, you've more or less got to juggle them around and arrange them, which is a good thing. And you can have more than one cut if you wish. And there are plenty of examples in the ones I've shown you, particularly Basher's list um, of lovely things under the cherry tree. Um, you can have more cuts if you want. And it may suggest, in a way, the fragment of a greater story. Yes, this is about a moment, but it's either about a moment that we've reached 
as in the first two boussons I gave you, or it, it's a moment where a story is beginning, uh, as with Christopher Jupp's Owl, or, or my Owlet, um, or my pine cone. And then thoughts. Well, I'm, a, uh, I'm going to say afraid, but I, I do it as well. There's an awful lot of verses being written these days which aren't really two images. It's an image, and then there's a thought. And it's usually the personal thought of the poet. And everybody says, oh, you know, how insightful, how lyrical. But really, they're much easier to write. You just take any image you like and then add a personal thought that you may have had that is vaguely related to the image. And that's it. And editors accept them. And sometimes they're quite nice to read. But it would be nice, I think, for this um, exercise of mind, if if we got away from one image plus a thought we're not looking to invite the reader into a private world of the poet mm. we want to have a shared or universal experience between the poet and and the reader and it's easier to make it or it makes it more universal if it's not something some thought that's tied to the poet and their personal current circumstance of you know, pain or nostalgia or whatever the thought is that they're having. So if we can if we can get away from the I and my, that would be that would be a good exercise, I think. And similarly, you know, personal program nouns, there's an awful lot of stuff being written, and I've done it too, uh, where you simply give an image and then say she or he, and you've got absolutely no clue as to who she or he is. Um, that it's again, it's a little of the easy way out. Uh, so we, I think if we're going to have um, a pronoun used, we should specify the person before we use it. You know, a hobo, the flower seller, the cop. Um, an exception yeah. might be to use the generic we, it, it, because that does include everybody. You know, we do this, we do that. So that's that we might get away with that, but it would be nice to have, um, you know, haiku which are harmonious, which produce a feeling of beauty or joy, which involve the arrangement of different visual elements, which can be related by some subtle linkage, not explicit, um, and which are detached from, you know, the poet's ego. That would be good. I was wanted to come back to this page, particularly for the. Well, for all of it, but particularly that last bit, if a thought is used in place of a real image, then if possible, make it impersonal and detached from the poet's ego. And as many poets who submit to poetry P will know, if a thought is used, it is often rejected. Often a thought tells the reader to go in a certain direction. Yes. And that's not what we're looking for. We want We want the reader to be able to mosey along in their own way on their own little journey it shouldn't be we don't want necessarily want to read about you know, the poet's emotion yeah uh we want the emotion to be suggested to us by the images that are in there exactly something subtle. i mean as as in that gorgeous Busson verse you know mist among grasses oh. silent rain evening calm I mean, that's yeah. that's wonderful yes uh, there's, he doesn't say, you know, Mr. Mangrass is, you know, I must learn to let go or something mm -hmm. like that. 
Keith, thank you very much once again for coming along and do, doing this for us because I know it took a lot of work, but it's really interesting and I'm really looking forward to seeing what comes in in the submission period for this topic. Me too. Thanks very much, Patricia. Thanks, Keith. Now, after this recording, Keith had a few more thoughts. We weren't able to record them for many reasons, most of them my fault, well, actually all of them my fault, but I promised Keith I'd bring those thoughts to you, and I will put them in the show notes so you can consider them. He wrote to me to say, of course, neither of us is saying that the harmonious arrangement of things is the only way to write haiku. There are many ways. Basho is said to have warned against its overuse. And he thinks as a foreigner and someone who has no qualifications in Japanese, he feels at a disadvantage discussing a Japanese concept such as Turiyavaza. I know, eventually I'll get it right. They say that fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And he and I would both like to say, if any of you watching this are Japanese or have a more fluent appreciation of the language and, of course, the aesthetics, please get in touch, send me some accessible references, and let me just add, volunteer to do a podcast. So thank you once again to Keith and, of course, to you for coming along today and listening to us. The podcast would be absolutely pointless without you. You know, why would I sit here talking to myself? So do let me know what you thought. And don't forget, you have a chance to get your work published if you join the Merry Band submitting to our video prompt on the Poetry Peak YouTube channel. If you're not listening in May 2023, then just check out our calendar of submissions and join in. And if you're signed up to our newsletter, you will have a chance to write Flash Coup as some kind wit put it, I think it was Mark Gilbert. As you found out last month, the call comes out the day before the submissions are due. It calls for quick thinking and quick action. And in fact, on our next podcast, I'm going to be bringing you the poem selected from our very first flash coup. One last thing, don't forget to let me know who or what you'd like to see in the live events. So that's it for this time. I really hope you've enjoyed it. And until we see each other again, next week I hope, keep writing. And of course, do let me know if there's something missing from the show notes. I do mess up from time to time, and I really appreciate it when you write and tell me. Ciao!